Well, good morning. Good to see you. Uh, good to be with you. My name's Mike, and I'm one of the pastors here. And we're going to be going into our time of teaching right now. And so if you're brand new, never done this before, inside your program is a message note sheet. It's a green and white sheet. I encourage you to take that out. And uh, if you guys are all set, uh, I'm ready to go. You guys ready to go? Yeah. All right, let's pray. God, we're just excited to be here and to see what you want to say to us today. And we're thankful for what you're doing in our lives. And most of all, we're thankful for Jesus and this, this uh, season to celebrate uh, his birth and, and kind of what it means for our lives, what it means for all of human history. And so we pray that you'd come today, you'd be our teacher. I pray for great freedom, uh, energy, passion as I teach. I pray as a church we'd gather around your word, we'd hear your spirit speak to us, and we'd be changed as a result. And we pray that in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, today we're continuing this series that we started last week, which is called Real Christmas. And for those of you who are new, just kind of a quick heads up, uh, this whole year we've been in a series uh, on the life and teaching of Jesus as seen through the eyes of one of the leaders of the early movement of Jesus. His name was Mark, and uh, he wrote a gospel called the Gospel of Mark. But if you've ever read Mark, you know this, that he doesn't start with the birth of Jesus. He starts with the ministry of Jesus when Jesus is about 30 years old. And so what we're doing for these four weeks before Christmas, we're stepping back. We're doing a separate series on kind of real Christmas to pick up some of these key events of the early years that, that, that surround the birth of Jesus. And then we go back in January, we'll pick up the third and final uh, sub-series of our, our life, of, uh, the, the message in the life of, uh, series in the life of Jesus. And so uh, if you were here last week, I mentioned this, that uh, I, I have real mixed feelings when it comes to Christmas. I, I love so much it goes with Christmas, you know, the gifts, the friends, the family, uh, the lights, the trees, uh, just all the special gatherings and so on. But as a Christ follower, I'm often conflicted because uh, I think so often as a culture and even as uh, Christians, as Christ followers, that we often miss the real story of Christmas. And I'm not talking just about the obvious things like, you know, keeping Christ in Christmas or uh, uh, Merry Christmas, not Happy Holidays, those kind of things. But I'm really talking about, uh, hey, if we were to go back in time, uh, what was it really like to be there? If we were there firsthand experiencing these events, what would it have been like? And even more importantly, uh, what do these key events, uh, what role do they play in this larger story that God is telling about this rescue mission that he's on to, to rescue the human race and to bring us back into relationship with him? And so what we're doing is we're spending four weeks uh, kind of going back, looking at some of these familiar stories of Christmas, but from a new angle, kind of pulling back the wrapping paper, if you will, uh, saying, hey, there's more here than meets the eye. What do these stories have to tell us about who Jesus is, why he's come, God's plan, and what it means to follow him? And so uh, if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to take them out, uh, turn them on if you've got apps uh, or whatever to, uh, to Matthew chapter 2. Uh, last week we started this series, and there in your note sheet there's a section called uh, The Story of the Search for the Magi. Search of the Magi. So last week we started in Matthew's gospel uh, with this account of uh, this uh, unexpected pregnancy, uh, this scandal that this young man, Joseph, maybe 18 to 20 years, was asked to step into as uh, the woman he's betrothed to uh, ends up coming up pregnant uh, before they're married, and what a scandal this was, and so we talked about that. Uh, today, we're going to continue on that story, and we're going to continue on in Matthew into the very next event that happens, and uh, once again, this is a familiar event uh, to many of us, but as I said, there's kind of more here that meets the eye, and so if you've got your Bibles, we're going to turn to chapter 2. Uh, I misplaced my Bible yesterday, so I'm working off my phone. I know that irritates some of you, but that's the way it is. Merry Christmas. Um, <laughs> 
So here we go. So uh, Matthew chapter 2 and verse 1. And so Matthew starts a couple of verses where he sets it up with uh, the key players and places involved in this event. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in uh, Judea, uh, during the reign of King Herod, uh, that some magi from the east came to Jerusalem and they asked, where is the one who's been born king of the Jews. We have seen his star when it rose. And some of your versions will say in the east. It can be translated either way. And we've come to worship him. Okay? So in these first two verses, uh, Matthew's just laying out some of the key places and players that are going to figure into this story, this account. And so what I want to do, there on your note sheet, I want to roll up our sleeves, kind of go back in time. Let's fill in some historical reality, what it's really like to be there for uh, these four places and, and uh, people. And so there in your note sheet, the first one is uh, Bethlehem. Uh, this event is going to happen in Bethlehem. And so this is important because the greatest king in Israel's history was who? Who was, who was the greatest king? Yeah, King David, right? The prophets of all said that one day a great king would come out of the line of David. He would be the Messiah. And it was prophesied that when he came, he would be born in the same hometown where David had grown up, which is the town of Bethlehem, right? So he's not only going to come from the line of Bethlehem, he is going to be born in the same hometown. Town. Now, Bethlehem's not a big place. I've been there a couple times. Very cool to stand out in the shepherd. They still see shepherds on the hills to this day uh, with their, their sheep. Uh, very cool. But uh, it's, it's not much to write home about. It's a small place, small town. It's about five or six miles south of Jerusalem. All right? So, so that's Bethlehem. It's going to play a, a key role in, in the account today. Secondly, the king. The king in this account is a man named King Herod. Now, we actually know quite a bit about King Herod from secular history. He was known as Herod the Great. There's a very famous Jewish historian who wrote in the first century AD, kind of the same time zone here. Uh, His name was Josephus. I've been rereading Josephus. In fact, I was on vacation at Thanksgiving and reading Josephus. It's what I do on vacation. As I know, it sounds like lots of fun. But uh, anyway, uh, I was reading, again, the, the story of the, it's kind of the history of the Jews, according to Josephus, especially during this time period. So he tells us a lot about King Herod. So Herod was an amazing guy. He was, uh, when he was a younger man, he, he's big, he's strong, he's handsome, he's powerful, he's like a larger Brad Pitt. Uh, so he, uh, he has the title king, which was very unusual in that day. Uh, this was a time and a, a day when the, uh, the, the Roman Empire is in power. And so normally they would place leaders in different parts of their empire. They would be called like ethnarchs, tetrarchs, governors, procurators, but rarely called kings. It was a very high title. So, so, uh, uh, so Herod was a very well-connected guy. Uh, some of you have heard about the love affair with Mark Antony and Cleopatra, right? You've heard of that, Cleopatra, right? All right, great. Uh, Anyway, uh, well, if you had heard of it, it's really cool. And uh, anyway, he was, uh, uh, Herod was close friends with Mark Antony. Um, Herod was close friends with uh, the very first Caesar, uh, the guy who became known as Augustus Caesar. And so uh, he was very well connected. He was an amazing, powerful warrior. And so the Roman Senate gave him the title King of the Jews. It's a very high, uh, exalted title. So he's a powerful guy, but Herod was also, also a ruthless guy. 
We'll talk more about this later today, but if you were to go back in Josephus and read what was going on in this period of history, it's uh, very ruthless, brutal. It's, uh, there's always intrigue, court intrigue, wherever you go. And so, for example, Herod had 10 wives. Uh, his favorite wife, he killed uh, because uh, she burnt the toast. No, it's kidding. Uh, he, she, he, he, uh, he, he had it in his mind uh, that she was out after his throne. And so he has her assassinated. Then he finds out uh, he was wrong. She really wasn't. And so he was really grieving her the rest of his life. Uh, Herod had over 12 kids, 12 sons. Uh, three of his sons he had executed because he thought they were trying to get the throne. So it's a pretty rough guy, ruthless time in human history. And uh, we'll talk more about it. But he's the king uh, that's in power uh, during this event today. Uh, number three, third thing is the Magi. Now, we don't know as much about the Magi, the specific Magi, as we do about uh, the, the king, Herod, but we know a lot about Magi in general. So let's set this up. First of all, everything you know about Magi, throw it out the window, right? So manger scene, right? Three guys dressed weird. Uh, well, they dressed weird. You can hold on to that one. But dressed weird, uh, coming with treasures there at baby Jesus' birth. Uh, wipe it all out. That's not what it's about. Uh, the Magi are very highly educated, influential guys coming from the eastern, uh, eastern part of the empire. So it would be like uh, maybe from Babylon, Pers area of Persia. could be Arabia. Probably Babylon, uh, Persia area. That's a 1,000 miles away from Jerusalem. All right? So, so these guys are highly educated. They would typically serve in the courts of kings. They were uh, highly trained. Uh, study of the stars, big on astronomy, uh, big on dreams, interpretation of dreams. For those who are familiar with the book of Daniel, the, the, the magicians that play a part there, kind of the magi, uh, that kind of a person, uh, highly educated, but they're, kind of, they're highly educated in the black arts, right? So they go to school with like Harry Potter, uh, and they, they uh, so they're, they're studying demonology, they're studying incantations, they're studying magic, all things that were forbidden by the Old Testament. And so they're, 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 they're worshipers of pagan gods, uh, and so they're, they're, they're people that, you know, far from God kind of people. And they're traveling a thousand miles in order to see this uh, child. Now, one thing that we believe about the Magi is that we would assume that they had knowledge of the Old Testament Hebrew scriptures. One thing that we forget is that at this point in history, Jews are spread throughout the ancient world. Wherever they go, they take their Bibles, their scriptures. And so in the ancient world, the prophecies of the Old Testament, the coming of the Messiah, were well known. We'll, we'll talk about that more in a minute. And so th these guys, uh, kind of very uh, wealthy, influential, highly educated, traveling probably a about 1,000 miles uh, in search of this uh, newborn king. And so next on your list is the star. Now, first thing I want to point out about the star is in the two verses we've read so far, I want you to catch this. There is no mention so far of the star moving. Okay, so we kind of picture this Charlie Brown Christmas or whatever. You know, these three guys, three guys in the camels going over sand, right? That's how you picture this. Not the way it was. These guys are, are most likely traveling in a large caravan. They're, they're carrying uh, wealth uh, over a thousand miles of, you know, bandit infested roads and things like that. So, so they are 
uh, you need to picture these guys as coming in a caravan, probably lots of soldiers, very wealthy. Uh, and there's no mention at this point in the narrative about the star moving. What it says, they saw the star rising in the east. In other words, they're in the east in Babylon, which is east of Israel. Uh, they're in the east. They see a star rising in the west. And in ancient times, it was believed that the rising of a new star, the discovery of a new star, signaled the birth of a great new ruler or king or powerful person. So catch this. They're in the east. They've got Hebrew scriptures. They're not God worshipers, but they've got Hebrew scriptures. Uh, they see a star rise, and they're putting this all together. And here's one thing you need to catch. In the ancient world, it was widely believed by many that in the first, around the first century, that, that there would arise a ruler, a kind of an international ruler out of Judea, the land of Israel. And, and uh, we have, for example, two famous, very famous Roman historians from the first century, uh, the time of Jesus, that, that describe this. And so these are secular guys. But there in your note sheet, I, I gave these examples. One guy, his name is Suetonius. The other is Tacitus. I've, uh, I've read quite a bit of Tacitus. And so here's, here's the examples. Uh, throughout the whole, uh, Suetonius says, throughout the whole of the East, there had spread an old, and that'd be the Eastern Empire, there had spread an, uh, an old and persistent belief that destiny had decreed that at that time, in the first century he's talking about, that coming forth from Judea, the land of Israel, they, they would, uh, there would be men coming forth who would seize power and rule the world. Now catch this, secular historian. Not Jewish, secular. Okay? Tacitus, again, Roman historian, says there was a firm persuasion that at this very time, the East was to grow powerful and rulers from Judea were to acquire universal empire. And so it's in this context of kind of cultural belief that uh, this was a time when a ruler would come out of Israel, uh, have Hebrew scriptures, star is cited over Israel, that causes these, uh, these uh, kind of astrologists, a magician, uh, uh, pagan magi, to make a thousand-mile journey. They may have been coming even to represent like kings of, say, uh, the Parthians or, or Babylonians, that kind of thing. So they're making this journey, and, and so they don't know exactly where to go. They just know the star is over Israel, and so they head to the capital of Israel, which is at Jerusalem, and when they show up, they go to the palace of Herod, because that's, if you're looking for a king, that's where you'd look, right? That's what makes sense. And so they show up there, and when they come into Jerusalem, this is a big deal. You've got a caravan, guys dressed from the east, you know, Persian-looking guys, uh, probably soldiers, big deal, and and it, uh, it becomes the talk of the town. They're, they're like asking around, hey, what do you know about this king that's been born? And so they eventually get to the palace there in Jerusalem, Herod's palace. And we're going to pick up a story there in verse 3. So in verse 3, when King Herod heard this, when he heard that they were asking that there was a, a king that was born, this new kind of big uh, you know, envoy came, Persians, a star. He hears a story and he's disturbed. And we get this because he's ruthless at protecting his throne. Any talk of a king would be seen as a threat. And all Jerusalem is nervous with him because when Herod gets nervous, people start losing their lives. And so uh, they're going to be disturbed. So uh, when, he had, uh, when he had called together 
all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law. So remember, it's Jerusalem, temples there, leaders of the religion of Judaism are there. He calls them together and he says, uh, hey, according to the scriptures, uh, where is Messiah to be born? So he doesn't really know the scriptures that well, but uh, he says, what, what do they say? And so they said, well, it's supposed to happen in Bethlehem in Judea, which remember is how far away from Jerusalem? Yeah, good, right. Saturday night said 1,000 miles. Um, all right, so yeah, five to six miles. And so, uh, and, and they said, uh, because this is what the prophet had written. So they're going to quote from Micah chapter 5. Micah is a prophet who's written hundreds and hundreds of years before about the coming of this great king from the line of David. And here's what the prophecy says. He says, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, remember, small town, he says, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. In other words, even though you're a small place, someone famous is coming from you. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd uh, the people, my people Israel. And so Herod kind of hears all this, and now he calls the Magi secretly. And I want you to catch that. I want you to picture this. From, from reading Josephus, and he's got, you know, 100 pages on Herod in, in his life. And so uh, people come to visit Herod all the time, important people, ambassadors, kings, or whatever. When they come, he entertains them lavishly. Like Herod is this amazing, not only a warrior, not only a king, he is an amazing builder. When we go to Israel, we will see this. Those who are going to Israel, we'll see this. There are just tons of places that Herod built over 2,000 years ago that are still standing today. Uh, when we go to Caesarea, we'll see a harbor. They used Roman technology uh, that was kind of new at the time to do underwater concrete, and they built a harbor uh, out at Caesarea. There's amphitheaters there. There's hippodromes to, to race horses. There's palaces there. When you go down by the Dead Sea, we'll go down to Masada. We'll see this ancient fortress built by Herod. We'll go to Herodium. When you go to Jerusalem and you go to the Wailing Wall, you've heard of that, those stones are from the foundation of Temple Mount that Herod built. He's an incredible guy, right? And so when people would come to visit Herod, very wealthy, very well-known, Herod, Herod underwrote the uh, Olympic Games in Athens, right? The, the Olympic Games in Athens were going under financially. He endowed them personally so the games could go on indefinitely in the future. Herod's building temples in Ephesus. I mean, he is a larger-than-life guy. And so when you come to visit Herod, his palace, you are going to be entertained, right? You, you're going to get the best. And so I picture this magi coming. They're staying with Herod now. And while they're there, he calls them off to the side and catches. He wants to have a secret meeting. Now, from the moment Herod heard that a king was born, that the Messiah was born, from that moment, he made the decision like that to take out this kid. Now he just has to figure out how to do this in such a way that distances himself from it. Because the last thing he wants to be known as is the king who killed the Messiah. Right? Because there are revolts against Herod and his kingdom all the time. There are false messiahs all the time. And so, so he's used to dealing with this, but if, if the nation believes that the Messiah was born and he kills him, can you imagine the revolt that's going to happen? 
So he wants to take out this kid, but he wants to keep it at arm's distance. So he doesn't want to send his soldiers. He doesn't want to make it public. He doesn't even want anyone to know what he's intending to do. So he calls the Magi secretly, and look what he asks them. He says, verse 70, he calls the Magi secretly, and he finds out from them the exact time the star had appeared. Now why? Why does he care? Because he's figuring out how old this child is. He's figuring out, like, okay, the star's going to appear when the child is born. How, am I looking for a five-year-old? Am I looking for a two-year-old? I'm like, I need to take out this kid. I need to, I, to narrow this down. And so uh, he says to them, uh, he, in verse uh, 8, he sent him to Bethlehem, remember, five or six miles away. And he says, I want you to go and search carefully for the child. Go door to door, do whatever it takes, man. Let, no, you know, spare no uh, effort at this. Find this kid. And then as soon as you find him, hey, come back and tell me so I can go and worship him too. Right? So, so the plot is, is uh, set. So after they'd heard the king, they, they head off on their way. And, uh, and all of a sudden, the star that they had seen when it rose, or in your sermon Bibles, in the east, and went ahead of them, and it stopped over the place where the child was. So this is the first time in this account that the stars moved. So best we can understand, they're in Babylon, they're in the east, see a star over Israel, come to the palace, looking for the king, where is it supposed to be? In Bethlehem, and now the star moves. So these are pagan Uh, pagan worshipers, right, worship all kinds of gods, but they've come in the hopes, kind of on the lark, that this star is indicating the birth of a kid. They've thousand miles, spent a ton of money. Uh, They have risked their lives, come on this long journey, and now the star's moving. And they are excited because they're banking everything on the star. It would seem the universe, the gods are cooperating. And so they're excited about this, and so they follow it, and in verse 11, uh, on coming to the house, and notice there's no manger here. Uh, we're no longer, so this idea that they're there at the manger, they're not there at the manger. This happens later. You know, they've been traveling at least probably a couple months. In the ancient world, you're going to travel about 17 to 20 miles a day, typically. And so uh, if it's, a, you know, a, a proxy say it's 900 miles, it's going to take them a month or two uh, to get there at, at fastest, even after they put together the caravan. So maybe it's several months, maybe it's a year, we don't know. But by the time they get there, they're, they're in this house, and they see the child with his mother, Mary. He may be a toddler, for all we know. And they, they bow down and they worship him. And literally in the Greek, it says they fall down and worship. Now, Catch this, the word for worship in Greek is pros kineo. Uh, pros means toward, kineo means to kneel. So it's to kneel toward someone. So it can be used of worshiping God, or it can also be used in the sense of like honoring a king or something like that. And we don't know what, what Matthew is saying here. We don't know which, what's going on here. But it, my, my hunch would be that they're not, they don't really realize this kid, they don't know the virgin birth, they don't know son of God, they just know supernatural kids, supernatural story, they want to honor him as king. And so they, they bowed down and they brought gifts, just like people would bring gifts to give to, 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 uh, to, to Herod, they're bringing gifts, expensive gifts, to give to honor this king. And so there's uh, three gifts that are given. They present them with the gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, uh, very expensive gifts. This is probably where the idea of three, the three wise men came from the three gifts. But there's nothing that says that. There could have been 20 wise men, could have been 30, could have been 10, could have been seven. In Eastern tradition, the tradition is 12. So if I guess you see a nativity scene in the Eastern world, they get 12 guys there. Anyway, more expensive, more expensive. Uh, 
So now in verse, verse 12, having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod. So apparently, I want you to picture, this has got to be exciting. I mean, can you, can you picture this caravan coming into small town Bethlehem? Rich guys dressed in the finest of silk, maybe got turbans on, whatever. I mean, this is big time. They come, they worship this kid, they bring the gifts out, and, they, and they, I'm sure they're going to have dinner together Right, they're gonna have dinner, and they're and probably Mary and Joseph are telling them they're a part of this story. Like, well, yeah, you think you got it weird? Like, let me tell you our story. You know, like, I'm seriously, I'm not kidding. I was totally, I'm pregnant, and weird. And so uh, they're telling that story, and they're like, well, you let me tell you our start of the story. It's like we're in the east, we see the star coming, we're reading these prophecies. You know, Joe says, you know, yes, we got to go. So they're telling the story, and then they go to sleep that night, and in the middle of the night. God warns them in a dream, the Magi, hey, don't go back to Herod. And so, so they're going to they're gonna escape. You know, Maybe it's cover of darkness. We don't know. Herod's got his spies everywhere. He's got fortresses throughout the land. Uh, very you know, well-connected guy. And so uh, they're going to try to escape. They go a different route. Eventually, Herod figures out that he's been duped. He's been outwitted. And so he's, he's furious. And so he gives orders to his soldiers, hey, head to Bethlehem. Now, remember, small town. Uh, so it's not going to involve a lot of people, but he says, go to Bethlehem, five or six miles away, and I want you to find every male kid in the town who's two years old and younger, right? Because he's going to add some margin. He knows how old this kid's supposed to be based on the age of the star. He's going to add some time to that, wants to make sure we don't take any chances. He says, any kid. And so I want you to picture this. Herod coming into town, door-to-door search, mothers hiding their children and, and pulling those two-year-olds out, take them outside and slaughtering these kids. Probably, you know, not more than 10 or 20. It's not, we're not talking hundreds here. It's a small town, but it's just gruesome. But uh, before the soldiers arrive, uh, God sends an angel to uh, Joseph. It's been a year or so since he's seen the angel now. The angel shows up in a dream and says, Herod's coming. That's all you need to know. Like if, you're, if you live in Judea, Herod's coming. That's bad news. Herod's coming. Run for your life. In the middle of the night, we saw this last week, Joseph, a man who's quick to obey, right, picks up, picks up their stuff, gets his wife, gets his young uh, son, stepson, and they head to Egypt, which makes sense. Uh, Egypt had the city of Alexandria, the second most important powerful city in the Roman Empire after Rome, large Jewish population there. My guess, they're going to Alexandria to hang out until Herod dies, all right? So that's the story. Now, for those of eyes to see, this is an amazing adventure tale. I'm telling you, if we had never read this story, and you're reading this thing, it reads like Lord of the Rings, I'm not, I'm not kidding. I mean, you know, uh, wizards in a far-off land, uh, supernatural star, thousand-mile journey, treasure, evil king trying to take out the incognito sun, um, uh, you know, fleeing in the middle of the night, running for your lives. I mean, this is the stuff of, like, legend, right? The, the stuff is cool. The thing that's so cool is that it's, it's not legend. It's, it's, it's real. It happened, and so what we're seeing at the birth, when, when God breaks into time and space, the birth of this child, it's an amazing adventure story that's is happening. Uh, as the forces of evil try to come together to destroy what God is planning. The, the interesting thing to me, though, is the question is, why is Matthew telling this account? 
I mean, yeah, it's a great story, but, but why is he, of all the stories, why this story? Um, Luke doesn't tell us the story. Matthew, uh, Mark doesn't tell us the story. John doesn't tell us the story. Matthew alone tells the story. So why is he telling the story, and what does he want us to learn from it? And what I want to do in our time together today, just two simple things. I, I want to, first of all, highlight big picture principle that helps us understand kind of the story behind the story, why he's telling the story, and then secondly, come back and say, how does this story impact our story? And so there in your note sheet, there's a section that's called the search, the story behind the story. Let's jump in. I want to give you the principle. I'm going to take some time to unpack it. Uh, you ask the question, why is Matthew telling this story? In fact, you could, you could step back and say, why is he telling us all these opening stories that surround the birth of Jesus? And it's more than their great stories. What Matthew wants us to understand, what we need to take away, very simple, is that God has a plan. That's the principle. God has a plan. And I want you to think, think with me uh, about this. You know, you start the opening, uh, you, you start the Gospel of Matthew and we didn't talk about this last week, but, um, but, but Matthew starts his story of the life of Jesus. And remember, it's, it's, he's going he's to go, life of Jesus, death of Jesus, resurrection of Jesus. This is just the intro chapters to this whole bigger story. And so you, so you ask the question, um, why is Matthew telling these stories? It's because he, he's, he's trying to help us understand God has a plan for human history. And this plan centers on the birth of this child, you see. And so, for example, if we were to go back to the start of Matthew, and we didn't do this last week, but if you go back, if you were to turn in your Bibles back to Matthew 1, what you would find is that, the, that Matthew starts the story of Jesus with a genealogy, right? a genealogy of Jesus that traces Jesus back all the way his lineage back to King David, and then from David back to Abraham, the father of the Jewish race. So the question is, why would you start a story with a genealogy, right? It's, it's, it's not exactly scintillating literature. Like I'm sure many of you have read the Gospel of Matthew and about third name in, you've skipped over the rest. He's right? like, right, let's get to the good stuff, right? And so like if you're writing a bestseller, you don't typically start with a genealogy. So why is Matthew starting with a genealogy? Because Matthew is building a case, Matthew is making this amazing claim in the gospel that we talked about last week, that there was a time and there was a place when the God who created all time and space entered into creation, became part of the human race, really, to rescue us so he could be restored to him and all creation could be made right. That's the story. That's the story he's telling. It's quite the claim, right? And so what Matthew is doing in his gospel, is especially his opening chapters, he is laying out evidence like a great attorney would do, like you and I are the jury, he's the, he's the attorney, he's laying out evidence. And the reason he is starting with a genealogy is because one of the things the prophet said is when the great king comes, that he will come from the nation of Israel, 
And more specifically, he will come from the line of David. And so he starts his story by saying, okay, peace, one of my evidence. God has a plan for the human race. It, it, it's all about the coming of a Messiah. Peace, one of my evidence, is his genealogy. Jesus fits the criteria. He was born from the right bloodlines. And then what does Matthew do next? Remember last week we went to the next event in Matthew. And the next event was the virgin birth. Okay, it's an amazing story, but it's not, he's not telling you just this amazing story. He's telling you because there was a prophecy in the book of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, 700 years before. Isaiah had prophesied that a virgin would be with child and would come and, and we would name Emmanuel, God with us. Next week, we're going to look at that prophecy in detail. And so, so the next piece of evidence that Matthew's laying out for us as an attorney, I was came, next piece of evidence, fulfillment of prophecy, God is carrying out his plan. This child was born of a virgin. And now we come today to the third piece of evidence. The prophet Micah said when the great king came, he would be born in Bethlehem. So you see what he's doing here? He's laying out his case that God has a plan for the human race and he is fulfilling that plan. And the fulfillment of these prophecies prove that this child is the Messiah. That, that's what he's doing. And for those who have eyes to see, there is even more to the story of the Magi. Because he could have just stopped with saying he was born in Bethlehem, and that would have made his point. But here's what I want you to catch. If you're a Jewish audience, if you're a Jewish reader, raised in the Old Testament, and which is who Matthew is writing for, uh, one thing you know is that there are many prophecies about the coming of this great king. And many of the prophecies talk about how all the nations of the world will kind of report to Jerusalem. He will be the great king over all creation. And, and there will be uh, the kings of the earth and the nations of the world will bring him tribute and bring him treasure. And so what we have in the coming of the Magi is the first installment of the coming of those prophecies. What you're seeing is the kings of the earth. You're seeing the great men of the earth bringing tribute to the king of Israel. And what we're seeing here is like a preview of coming attractions of when all the kings of the earth will come, you see? And so what's going on, as, as Matthew is highlighting too, that the heroes in the story, and we'll talk about it later, the heroes in the story are not the spiritual leaders. The heroes in the story, not Herod. The hero in the stories are these pagan occult-loving, far-from-God, astrology people, the last people that you would expect are the first people to come and recognize him as the king. And what Matthew is doing as he lays out this story, as you look at his whole gospel, the story of Matthew is about, starts with the birth of the king and Gentiles coming to worship him and the, the, in the very last chapter of Matthew, how does the story end? Where Jesus says to his disciples, go into all the nations of the world. And see, what Matthew is doing, he's helping us to understand God has a plan for human history. This plan centers on this kid. These prophecies are proof that he is the Messiah. And those from all the world are eventually going to come to worship this kid. You see, that's the story that he's telling. And so what Matthew wants us to understand, God has a plan for human history. It centers in this child. And catch this, 
All of human history leads up to the birth of this child. All human history flows out. The future flows out of the birth of this child. And catch this. God has a plan and your personal destiny depends on how you respond to God's plan and this child. You see, that's why he's telling the story. Now, so it leads into a question. And the question is, well, how are we going to respond? God's got a plan. He's laying out the plan. It all leads up to this kid. So how do we respond to that plan? And so there in your note sheet, if you turn it over in the back, in fact, before we do that, let's go back and pick up one passage that I forgot to mention in the previous son, in Psalm 72. So if you're raised Jewish, right, you, you, have, you, you know these prophecies about all the kings of the earth will come. I just want to give you one example. This is from Psalm 72. Uh, this is a psalm associated with King Solomon. So remember, David is given the promise that one day from his line a great king will come who will rule. Uh, Solomon is the next king up, uh, the son of David. And so he becomes sort of a type or a kind of a preview of this king who will one day come. And so in this song of the, uh, a psalm of Solomon, uh, you get a picture of this prophecy that the Magi were kind of like fulfilling. And so here we go. So it says, uh, he's talking about the great king who will come. He will rule from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. From the river would be from the Euphrates River uh, to the ends of the earth. Uh, the desert tribes, from Israel's perspective, those would be those to the east. They'll bow before him, and his enemies will lick his dust, the dust. The kings of Tarshish, and that's in Spain, so far west from Israel. The kings of Tarshish and of distant shores will bring tribute to him. And the kings of Sheba and Seba, that would be uh, and like Arabia, um, to the south of Israel, will present him gifts. And all kings will bow down to him and all nations will serve him. So the story of the Magi, if you're Jewish, is like a picture of the future. You see, the great king has been born and, and the kings of the earth are gonna come, all right? So the question then is, how do we respond to this plan? And there on your note sheet, now you know where it is since I already made you flip there once. You have this last section called the search, what's your story? So we've talked about the story of the Magi. We've asked the question, why is Matthew telling this story? What's the story behind the story? And now the question is, what's your story? How are you responding to God's story? And so the principle goes like this. Now the question goes like this. Are you responding, or if you like better, how are you responding to God's plan? So we've seen today that what Matthew is claiming is that God has a plan. He's carrying out that plan. The plan centers on this child. The question is, are you responding to God's plan? Now, what's fascinating to me, as we study this account of Matthew, of the Magi, what you see is there's several different responses to God's plan, isn't there? It's the same plan, same story, different responses. So, for example, Herod. Let's start with Herod. Uh, Herod is a fascinating guy. I wish you had time. I mean, we had a couple hours. i just tell you Herod stories. They are unbelievable. Uh, you know, I already, already talked about, you know, his wife he kills, uh, his sons he has strangled, you know, puts them up on trial and doesn't even let them come to their own trial, invites all his friends, condemns them, and then has, spends a couple weeks figuring out how to, how to kill them, decides let's strangle them. And so it's just Herod. Uh, one of my favorite Herod stories, though, is he's now like 70 years old. He's about to die. 
he's got uh, uh, some sort of venereal disease, like gonorrhea or syphilis, and uh, it's destroyed his body, right? So he is in, his intestines are just, uh, just kind of rotting out. His private parts are rotting out. Sorry, it's gruesome, but it's just truth. And so he, he, is just, he is in bad shape. And so he goes down to Jericho, which is one of his palaces, and, and Jericho's by the Dead Sea. It's, it's, he's turned into a resort area, uh, warmer weather down there, kind of like our Palm Springs or something. He goes down there. He's got the Hippodrome where they race the horses. He's got the palaces. And so he's got the best doctors down there. And so they decide to treat him. They're going to dip him in like hot oil. So they're going to submerse him in hot oil. You know, it's kind of their thought of what, what might be helpful. I'm not sure why. But uh, anyway, maybe they're trying to kill him prematurely. I don't know. But he almost dies and he recovers. Uh, and so he knows he's about to die. And uh, he, uh, he knows that when he dies, uh, no one's going to be crying. Uh, he, no, no one's going to be missing him. And so he wants to make sure on the day that he dies, people are crying. So what he does is he gives the order to have just, uh, I can't remember how, hundreds, just a ton of top leaders of the nation arrested, political leaders, financial leaders, uh, and he has them brought to the Hippodrome in Jericho and locked up in the Hippodrome. And then he gives the orders. When I die, I want you to slaughter all these men from the leading families of Israel because I want there to be tears on the day that I die. I mean, the guy is unbelievable, right? And so, so how does Herod respond to news of the king? And I want you to catch this. Again, picture this. Jerusalem, major city, hundreds of thousands of people living in Jerusalem. Just a normal time. During Passover, it swelled to three million people. But it's hundreds of thousands of people. It's a big place, right? And into this big place comes this caravan of, say, Persians, right? Uh, the, the retinue of, uh, you know, uh, uh, guards and Maybe they're being carried on, you know, on those, you know, the things that people carry on. I don't know what they're called. Uh, and, and, you know, they've got the riches, got the wealth. And they're, they're, they're highly respected. They're coming in that the whole city is talking about this. And they've got this incredible story about seeing a star. And they're coming to meet the king. And so he apparently believes the story, or at least it's, it's credible enough. He calls in the top religious leaders and says, hey, where, according to prophecy, is this king going to be born? They say, in Bethlehem. So at some level, Herod's buying into the story. At some level, he believes the Magi, he believes the scriptures, uh, but his decision instantly is to take out the Messiah. And so he wants to do it on the sly. He doesn't want to be tied to the crime. But right away, the way he responds to the news of Messiah is by saying, I need to take him out. And what I want you to catch is for Herod, there was no room for a king in his life. Herod wanted to run his own life. There was no ring, room. So the Messiah was seen as a threat to his independence and his rule. Are, are you with me in this? You following this? Now, here's what I'd suggest. As we enter into this Christmas season as a culture, that there are many people in our culture that feel exactly the same way about Jesus. They see Jesus as a threat. There's no room for a king in their life. Right? So, so not, it's not necessarily they even disbelieve 
the story of Christmas. It's not even they disbelieve. It's just that there's no room for a king. And they're going to do everything they can to destroy that story, to keep that story out of public view, to undercut that story, because deep in their heart, there's no room for a king. So for example, uh, uh, I think of C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite authors, right? Uh, Chronicles of Narnia fame, Oxford scholar, Cambridge scholar. Uh, as a, a young adult, he's an atheist or an, actually an agnostic, right? And then through a series of events, he comes to Christ. Of course, all his friends are shocked, his colleagues are shocked. And over the course of his life, there were many of his uh, kind of agnostic, non-believing friends, Cambridge, Oxford professors, who'd say, hey, Lewis, the only reason you believe in God is because you want there to be a God. Like deep down psychologically, you want to believe there's a God. You want to believe Jesus, and, that, and that's why you believe in Jesus, because it's not because the facts are there, it's because you just want to believe. And Lewis would always laugh, and he said, are you crazy? Before I came to Jesus, the last thing I wanted to believe in was this. He says, the, thought, the very thought that there is a God who is incredibly powerful, knows all, can do all, who knows everything about my life and that I report to was terrifying. It's the last thing I wanted to believe. I wanted to run my own life. I didn't want to report to any God. And so for many people, the story of Christmas, the story of it's like that. Like, I, I don't know if you have experience. You're sharing Jesus with someone, you're talking, and there are many people, as you talk with them, about, they have legitimate questions. Hey, what about evolution? What about the age of the earth? What about this whole resurrection story? Isn't that just mythology left over from kind of the, the Persians that kind of made its way to Judaism? And these scriptures that man-made, there's filled with airs. And there's many people, when you talk about Jesus, they're going to have legitimate questions that deserve legitimate answers. And they're truly seeking the truth. And they just have real big questions, and, and they need Great answers. We need to provide those answers. But there's another kind of person that when you're talking about Jesus, they keep throwing up issue after issue, and you're giving them answers, and they just move on to the next one. And, and you begin to realize they don't really want to know the truth at all. All they want to do is discredit the message of Jesus because deep in their hearts, they don't want a king. And if this story is true, they're going to have to do what the Magi did and fall to their knees and worship the king. And they don't want a king. And so like Herod, they're going to do everything they can, maybe on the sly, maybe not obviously, but to discredit the story, to remove the story as if it never happened. That's one response. A second response is the response of the spiritual leaders. And this, again, fascinating to me. Remember that when the caravan comes, Herod calls them in. He calls together the top leaders of the nation, the spiritual leaders, know the Bible like the back of their hand. From the time they're young, they're going to temple. They're going to synagogue. They've memorized the Torah, at least the five uh, books of the, the Old Testament, the first five books of Moses. They, these guys know the Bible like you, you and I uh, never will. Uh, they, these guys pray on a regular basis for the coming of Messiah. So if anyone would be like primed to recognize the Messiah, it'd be these guys, right? 
So when Herod says, where is the Messiah going to be born? They don't even hesitate. They don't have to pull out their iPhones and say, yeah, uh, Wikipedia, where does it say? I mean, they, they know the answer, right? They, they, off the top of their head, it's, it's Bethlehem, the prophet Micah. They can quote it, all right? So if anyone has an inside track on worshiping the king and discovering the Messiah, it's them. But here's what blows me away. According to the text, after the caravan comes, the amazing story of the star, the meeting with Herod, this is big time stuff, the answering of the question, he's born in Bethlehem, they are so indifferent to the story that they don't even take a five to six mile trip, which is like from here to the habit in Simi. to go find out if the Messiah is born. Like, is this crazy? I mean, even if you think, hey, these are Persian, pagan, astrologers, what do they know? I mean, the guys have come a thousand miles. You think it's like worth it, like postponing your Christmas shopping for a few minutes? Go to see me. I know for some of you that seems like a long way. Go to see me, you know, find it out. It, could it be? But what had happened in their lives, they'd fallen into the trap a long time ago of becoming religious. And we talk about this all the time here at Rocky Peak. One of the greatest dangers of our life is becoming religious. Is religious people they're responsible for Jesus' death. Right? Religion kills. We've talked about in the series in Mark. And one of the greatest enemies is for us to pursue religion and to stop pursuing God. And what had happened to these men is they, they, they were wealthy, they were respected in their culture, they didn't care about a Messiah, they are just happy the way their life was. And somewhere along the line, they had become indifferent. And as I look at our culture, this describes our culture today, right? Every year we, set, we celebrate Christmas. Most people in our culture today know the basic story. Maybe not all the story, but they know there's a virgin. They know that there's a donkey. They know there's three camels. They know there's some wise men. They know there's a star. They know some angels. They may not know the significance of the story, but they know the story. But for most of our culture today, we respond just like the spiritual leaders. We hear the story. We bake the fudge. We put up the tree, put up the star, set up the manger scene. You answer the phone. <laughs> we put Rudolph up. And we go through Christmas, maybe even go to a Christmas Eve service. We hear the story. And then after New Year's, we take down the lights, we put away the tree put Rudolph back, we realize we've gained seven pounds, we sign up for a gym membership, and we go on as if Christmas never happened. And we never search out this amazing story that's being told that there was a time and a place where God invaded human history into time and space to rescue us and we never even travel five or six miles metaphorically to go and see if this story could be true. And then there's a third response. 
And the third response is the response of the Magi. And this is the one that blows me away because, really, these guys should be voted least likely to succeed, right? I mean, they, they grew up in Babylon. I mean, they're, you know, they went to, you know, sorcerer school with, with Harry. I mean, these guys, um, th- these guys have grown up studying astrology, worshiping pagan gods, worshiping fire gods, learning incantations, uh, learning how to put spells on, how to interpret dreams, uh, learning demonology. That's what these guys have spent their life doing, right? Like, if, if anyone's going to come and meet the king of Israel, it's not going to be these guys. And if there's something about the story, there's something about the prophecies, there's something about the star that, that's compelling. And contrary to what you think, they make a thousand-mile journey at great time, energy, and expense in the hopes that this story may be true. When they show up in Jerusalem, they don't even know where to go. They just go to the palace because, hey, if there's a king being born around here, the palace is a good place to look. And what's crazy, of all the characters in this story, they and they alone are the one who meet the Messiah. They're the only ones that get to encounter the king. And what I love about this account is it highlights this principle we often talk here about at Rocky Peak, that God reveals himself to those who seek him and to them alone. God reveals himself to those who seek him. And so the question, as we enter the Christmas season, as we get ready for a new year, here's my question for you. The question is, we've, we've studied this plan of God. It centers in this, this child, uh, Jesus, and the question is, how are you responding to that plan? And I want to ask this question at a couple different levels. I, I want to ask this level, first of all, if you're here today, and for whatever reason that you have not yet decided to follow Jesus in your life, so you're, you're not a believer in Jesus, you're here, maybe you're invited by someone, you're, you're a friend, you're just checking out Jesus, whatever, but you're on a journey, right? And so you're here checking this out, and, and so this may be the first time you've really heard the story of Christmas. Like you, you knew all the details, you didn't know the significance. God's coming to invade, to rescue us by his life, his death, and resurrection to make a way for us to be right with God and to be restored in our relationship with God and to receive the gift of his spirit, to be remade, to become the people we were created to be, to live with him for this life and the next life. And it's the first time you've really ever heard that story. And it's a fascinating story. And honestly, you may be here and saying, you know what? I'm like the least likely to succeed. Like I've never seen, I could never imagine myself as becoming a Christ follower. Like I've been more of a new age person. I've been into Buddhism. I've been into this. I've been an agnostic like, like C.S. Lewis. Or like, I'm like the least likely person. That's me how you've seen yourself. And yet, as you're sitting here today, something is stirring in your heart. It's the same thing that stirred in the heart of the Magi. That, that there's something stirring. What if this story is true? And deep inside your heart, there is a hunger to pursue the story, to follow the star, to see if it's true. And here would be my encouragement to you. I just want to challenge you if that's you, to follow in the footsteps of the Magi, to take this journey, to start asking questions, to start pursuing, 
maybe to learn more about the story, to talk to others who know more, and most of all, to begin to go to God and to say, God, uh, if there is a God, if you're hearing me, if you're there, would you show me if you're real, and would you show me if this account is real, and would you show me that all of history is about this child and about our destinies determined by our relationship with that child. Would you show me if it's true? Because here's what I believe. I believe that God reveals himself to those who search. And if you're serious about this, that you want to know if the story is true, that like the Magi, you will find. Seek and you will find, Jesus said, right? Now, let me talk to those of us here who are Christ followers. And let me ask you, how are you responding to this story of Christmas? Uh, you know, as Christ followers, we understand this, that God has a plan for human history. The plan centers in the Son. Uh, as Christ followers, we know it goes deeper than that. That not only is a plan for human history and all the human race, he's got a plan for our lives. So like King David <laughs> said, all the days of my life were written in your book before there's one of them. In Ephesians, in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul says, we're not saved by our works, but we're saved for good works that were planned in advance for us before time began. God's got a plan. And so the question is, as a Christ follower, how are you responding to this plan? And here's what I found. For most Christ followers, there are seasons in our life we are responding well to God's plan. There are seasons in our life, like the Magi, we are searching for the king. There are seasons in our life we are following the star and listening to the, the leading of the spirit in our life, and we are pursuing God, and we are finding the child. We are, finding, we are encountering Christ. We are finding him. We're falling on our knees before him. We're worshiping, and we're giving our gifts. Life is right. We're following the king. We are doing what we're designed to do. We're carrying out that plant. There are times and seasons like that. But I also know that as Christ followers, sometimes we can get distracted. Sometimes we can get off track. Sometimes we just get busy. Sometimes we forget about the plan. Sometimes we begin to pursue our own plans. And so what happens without knowing it, we become like the spiritual leaders. We become religious people. We're going to church. We're reading our Bible. We're, we're doing our thing. but we've lost the passion. We're, we're not pursuing the king. We're not seeking him out. We're not hungering and thirsting after his plan. We're not experiencing that plan, and we're not encountering the Christ and worshiping him with all of our life. And, and so the question today for you as a Christ follower is, is, are you on track? Do you have the heart of the Magi today? Are you pursuing the king? Are you pursuing his plan? Are you locked in? Are you locked on? Are you running hard? Are you spending your time, your energy, your finances to pursue the king and pursue the plan he has? And here's a question for you. As we go into 2014, you know God has a plan for your life. You know he's got a plan for 2014. Are you on track to experience that plan? Or have you gotten off track like the spiritual leaders to where you can hear the story of Christmas and Jesus is only five or six miles away, but you have become so indifferent with carrying out your own plan, you're not even willing to go five or six miles 
to meet the king. Hey, may this be a year as a church, as Christ followers, we are on track, on target, on path, on journey, running hard, time, uh, resources, uh, finances. Our life is the life of the Magi because that star has captured our heart and we want to experience all that he has for us. Amen? Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, we're just so excited to be here. What an amazing story and what an amazing model these magi present. Even people far from God, but just pursuing you until they found. And we want to be those people. We want to be that church. God, I just pray if there's any here in our midst today that are just in journey towards Jesus, have not given their life. God, that you would hear their prayers as they pray, as they ask you to reveal the truth about Christmas, that you would speak to them. You would lead them. You would guide them. The star would come in their life, and they would guide them to come experience the king. Their lives would be transformed. I pray for those of us here as Christ's followers, God, that we would not be distracted, we would not be religious, we would not be indifferent, that we would be a people on journey, a people that have a hunger and a passion to pursue you, experience you, and carry out your plan as we move in this new year. We pray, Lord, as we go in this time of worship, as the band comes, as they sing over our lives, as we, as we sit back and reflect You'd help us to ask this question, are we more like Herod? Are we more like the spiritual leaders? Are we more like the Magi? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Oh, God. That's our prayer. That you would come this Christmas season. We celebrate the time when you did come. And Lord, now through your Holy Spirit, you come and you live in our lives. You dwell within us. And God, we want to be that church, those people that are experiencing your presence, that we would encounter you week by week as we worship, as we gather, as we go through our weeks, as we hear you leading us and guiding us and teaching us how to follow, that you would be the one who comes. And God, we just want to say that we are ready and we are willing, we're hungry for you to come. And we pray as we continue this Christmas season, week by week, as we enter the new year, that each week would be a week that you'd come and we'd meet with you and you'd shape us and teach us and change us and transform us be more and more like you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. 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 Yeah, it's good. Hey, uh, so glad you're here today. Next week we're going to continue this journey. It's hard to believe, but next weekend is actually Christmas Sunday. And uh, so then we'll be, we'll be doing that next week. Uh, the message will continue this series that we've been real Christmas. We're going to unpack that prophecy of the virgin being with child and, and this theme of Emmanuel, God with us, and how throughout human history, God has been moving closer and closer. That's what Christmas was about. They come to be with us and what it means to be live in the presence of God in our lives today. And so I uh, hope you can be with us next, uh, next weekend. And then, of course, Christmas Eve, 1, 3, and 5, just a great opportunity to invite your friends, family to come and to seek him together. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right. So, hey, after the service, don't forget, always have the prayer connection, prayer corner, back to my left, some tables back there if you need prayer about anything. Maybe you're here today, you just want to learn more about Jesus and want to just talk with someone with that great head on back there. They'd love to talk with you, pray with you, well, whatever you want to pray about. Uh, and then next week, we'll continue this journey together as we celebrate the coming of the King. And so until then, may the Lord be with you. Uh, may you experience his presence in your life in increasing and profound ways. Uh, may you learn to hear his voice. May you sense his star moving in your life. 
Uh, may you pursue him this week until you find him. Seek and you will find. And uh, look forward to getting back together next week as we pursue him together. Amen? Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Love you. See you next week.